Good morning. It is good to see all of you here this morning, and I thank you for coming, joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. For those of you who have joined us here in person this morning, welcome. And for those of you who are joining us online, we want to welcome you uh, to our services here at Ivy Creek this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them out. Turn with me once again to the book of Psalms and to the 22nd Psalm, to Psalm 22. As we continue our series in uh, that I have entitled Songs from the Heart, we come to what I have uh, come to realize is truly an amazing psalm written by King David. Most of the time when we get to the 20th Psalms in the, in the 20s, we think of the, the 23rd Psalm because that's perhaps one of the most, if not the uh, most familiar psalm, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't run past to 22nd Psalm to get there too quickly. And so this morning I want us to spend some time uh, thinking about it. Many have noted that the 22nd Psalm is the first in a triad of Psalms. The 22nd, 23rd, and 24th kind of come together. Many people have noted uh, in a progression of the Lord Jesus Christ being portrayed as the people's shepherd. And the Lord willing, we'll, we'll come back and look at the 23rd and the 24th Psalm in the weeks ahead. Uh, but this morning, I want to focus our attention on Psalm 22 because it portrays for us the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We've been singing a little bit about that this morning. We've talked about the, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and, and what it has accomplished for us. And so we're going to see that this morning as we look at it here in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 has been called the Psalm of the Cross. Uh, it has been known as the Psalm of the Suffering Savior. It has been called an Easter Psalm. It has been called the Fifth Gospel. We'll see a little bit of that when we go through it this morning. I honestly just came to it, and when in my study, I just came away and said, I don't, I don't have another title except just to call it an amazing psalm. It truly is an amazing psalm. And, and, and as we read it and study today, I hope that you will come away convinced of the amazing nature of it, but also the amazing Savior to whom it points. That's, that's my goal this morning. So let's, let's stop talking about it. Let's read it. How's that? Uh, Psalm 22, you'll see it is to the chief musician. It is set to the deer of the dawn. We don't know exactly what that means. Perhaps it's a tune uh, that was commonly known, but it's set to that, and it is a psalm of David. And hear the word of God this morning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, for there is none to help. 
Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far from me. O oh my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him and fear Him. All you offspring of Israel, for He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him, He heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear Him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before Him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That he has done this. Brothers and sisters, this, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word to be given the honor and the privilege to be able to stand and to open it and to read it aloud and to hear it. Thank you for such an honoring privilege. Lord, we know that there are countless believers across this world today who do not have that privilege. There are those that do not have the access to the word of God like we do here. We pray for them today. We pray for them because we know that many of them are hidden away and in secret and in silent for fear of their very lives. And what they would give to be able to have the word of God in front of them. But I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would bring peace and, and comfort to their hearts. That you would, you would give them the opportunity to just do what we've done and that's spend some time reflecting on God's word. Now, Lord, I pray that I would honor you by accurately reflecting what is brought to our attention through this psalm and that you would do a great work in our hearts as a result of it. These are my prayers, and I pray them in Christ's holy name. Amen. As I've stated to you, I, I believe, and as the title of my sermon conveys, I believe this is truly an amazing 
psalm. Um, it's probably not one that gets all of, a lot of attention from us, but maybe it should get more than it does. Uh, in fact, I agree with many who have said that this passage really necessitates that we walk slowly through it and that we, we walk reverently, considering what, what the Lord reveals uh, to us through it, because it reveals some insights into the mind of Jesus that really go beyond our comprehension. And to that end, let me point out that because it's written in first person singular, so it's written from a first person perspective, and because David is, is, is given to us as being the author of this psalm, many have proposed that David was writing about something that he himself experienced. And, and, and they proposed that, that this was about a time in his own life, detailing the, the, the difficulties and the uh, the, the, the challenges that he experienced. And, and, and no doubt David experienced some very difficult times as he ran from King Saul. Uh, you, you'll read about that in 1 Samuel and even in 2 Samuel, all of the, the things that, that he was up against and he experienced severe suffering and abandonment. But, but as Derek Kidner, who's really become an authority on, on, on the Psalms, has, has written, he says, no incident recorded in David's life can be again to account for the language of this psalm. In fact, Kidner goes on to say that the language of Psalm 22 really defies naturalistic explanation. And consequently, I believe the best way to understand Psalm 22 is in the terms of the Apostle Peter, who later in the book of Acts in the New Testament, in chapter 2, verse 30, concerning another of David's psalms, said this. He said that David should be recognized as an Old Testament prophet who foresaw and spoke of events that would ultimately happen to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is to that recognition that brings me to the first point that I want to bring to your attention today. As I said, this is an amazing psalm, and the first way that we know how amazing it is is by recognizing the amazing accuracy of David's prophetic voice. The amazing accuracy of David's prophetic voice. In my studies this week, I came across an illustration that, that really drove home just how amazing Psalm 22 is. I want you to hang with me for just a couple of minutes as we, we think through this. Just imagine with me that there was in existence a document that was written in the year 963 A.D. 963 A.D. Some over 500 years, so before the, the discovery of the United States, or the discovery of the Americas. That long before America had ever been discovered, 963 A.D., imagine a document was written, and now suppose that that document provided some very specific details about a man of worldwide distinction, a man who would, would head a great nation. And imagine that that document said that the man would be riding down the street of a large metropolitan city in a metal chariot that was not drawn by horses but was self-powered. And that as he rode down that street that, that suddenly and violently from, from, from outside he was killed by the penetration of his brain by a little small piece of metal that was hurled at him from a weapon that was made of wood and iron. And then imagine that this document written in 963 AD went on to describe that within hours of that occurring, that the entire globe was turned upside down from the news of his death. Now, in 963 AD, such a document containing such details would have been hard, if not impossible, for somebody to comprehend. 
But if such a document had been written in 963 A.D. and we were able to read it today, well, especially since we know that 1,000 years later on November the 22nd, 1963, that President John F. Kennedy was in a motorcade driving through Dallas, Texas, when he was assassinated after being shot by a rifle, then it would give us a different perspective on that document than those who had the document to begin with. Particularly in light of the fact that it was written a thousand years and many, many, many years before vehicles were ever created, before guns were ever created, before radio or television could ever disperse news all across the world. If such a document had existed in 963 A.D., it would have been a document that would defy logic. It would cause all of us to stand slack-jawed in amazement at it because of all that it was able to perceive and able to speak. Now, I hasten to point out that no such document from 963 A.D. actually exists. But Psalm 22 exists. And Psalm 22 was written 1,000 years before the time of Christ. And the accuracy with which the description of what took place at Calvary, the accuracy of it as it is revealed to us in Psalm 22 should cause us to stand slack-jawed in amazement at the ability of David to foresee what would happen 1,000 years later. It reads as if David were actually at the foot of the cross. It actually reads as if it was the first-hand account of one who had been pierced and nailed to the cross because he says in verse 16, he says, They pierced my hands and my feet. What makes this account even more amazing is it provides us with a graphic description of death by crucifixion hundreds of years before such a form of capital punishment was even invented. No one in David's time was ever put to death by crucifixion. In fact, crucifixion was a Roman form of execution, not a Jewish one. Yet under the influence of the Holy Spirit, David wrote with the precision of an eyewitness who observed everything that occurred when Jesus was crucified. Let me point to you just a couple examples of the accuracy and the precision with which David prophesied here in Psalm 22. Consider the fact that our Lord's cry of dereliction, there in the very first words, that probably when you read it, you knew, you knew that you had heard that before. My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Those words are, are attributed here to the psalm, the psalmist who writes this, but they're also, we know, words that, that formed on the lips of our very Lord as he hung on the cross. Matthew 27, 46, Mark 15, 34, they tell us that Jesus said these exact words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, some might, might say, well, Jesus was familiar with the psalm. He knew the Psalms, and so it would have been, oh, we would understand that while he hung on the cross, that he would have remembered this Psalm and taken the words of it and appropriated it for himself. So there's really nothing that amazing about that, preacher. But consider the fact that according to verse 8 here of Psalm 22, those who shoot out their lips and those who, who shake their heads and say, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him since he delights in him. Well, let's compare that to what we read in Matthew 27, verses 42 and 43, where the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they mocked Jesus by saying, 
He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now, those chief priests and those scribes and those elders, they would have been familiar with Psalm 22. But I can promise you and assure you they would never have knowingly aligned themselves with the mockers that David identifies here in this psalm. Yet we recognize that their words and their actions precisely fulfill David's prophecy. And then notice with me verse 18. Verse 18, the one who, who suffers there declares, look, they divide my garments among them and my clothing and for my clothing they cast lots. All four gospel writers identify this event as having occurred while Jesus was being crucified on the cross. In fact, Mark chapter 15 verse 24 reads this, And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now here's something I can promise you. The Roman soldiers who were committing these acts against Jesus, they weren't familiar with Psalm 22. Some, some remote Hebrew psalm that, that the Jews were familiar with, and yet their actions fulfilled its prophecy with complete accuracy. This is what I mean when I, when I say that this psalm is amazing. It is amazing because of the amazing accuracy of David's prophetic voice, what he was able to tell that would occur a thousand years later. He writes it here and it occurred just exactly as he said. But may I say to you that, that this proves to us that, that it is God who knows the future. It is God who reveals things and he revealed it to his prophet David. Only God can predict things. Only God can bring things like this to pass, And what it really assures us of and proves and provides us with is one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. And that we can read it and that we can depend on it. And we know it's true because it's been fulfilled. So, having considered the amazing prophecy and the amazing accuracy of this prophecy, let's, let's consider its amazing nature from another angle this morning I want you to notice the next point that I have listed for you on your outline this morning we move from the amazing accuracy of David's prophetic voice to the amazing depths of God forsakenness the amazing depths of God forsakenness revealed to us in this psalm let's go back to that cry of abandonment that we looked at there in verses 1 and 2 it's the cry of one who feels as though God has turned his back on him the psalmist pleads this. He says, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? I cry, but you do not hear. Maybe you felt that way a time or two in your life. I'm sure David felt that way. But we look past just those feelings to the, to the ultimate example that we have here. Might I suggest to you that both Matthew and Mark record, that, as I said, that these words came from the lips of Christ as he hung on the cross. No doubt his cry is an expression of unfathomable pain. At the real abandonment that he experienced as he became sin and a curse for us. It is, it is a cry of, of dereliction. It is a, a cry of desolation. It is a, a cry of desertion. 
It is the cry of one who has been forsaken by God because he has been separated from God and because God is silent. Every commentary and every sermon that I read regarding our Lord's cry really marvels at the mystery of these words. Martin Luther is said to have considered Jesus' cry of forsakenness and uttered this, God forsaken by God. Who can understand that? J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, the deep mystery in these words which no man can fathom is that they were meant to express the real pressure on our Lord's soul as he hung on the cross. And then Tim Keller, who's a more modern writer, he captures the essence of Jesus' cry this way. He says the forsakenness, this, this loss, was between the Father and the Son who had loved each other from all eternity. And this love was infinitely long, absolutely perfect, and Jesus was losing it. Jesus, the maker of the world, was being unmade. The amazing depths of God-forsakenness that we come across in this passage is characterized by silence, it's characterized by separation, but it's also characterized by sneering and scorn. Look, look with me again at verses 6 through 8. Notice the words that, that the psalmist uses, but I am a worm and am no man. A reproach of men, despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake their head, saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. As I mentioned, when we read, when we read these events surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus here in Mark's gospel, we realize that there were many who unknowingly fulfilled the prophecy that was written about them a thousand years later. They didn't realize that's what they were doing, but yet that's what they did. Listen to how Mark describes what happened as Jesus hung on the cross in Mark 15. He says, those who passed by blasphemed him, they wagged their heads and, and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, he saved himself, others he cannot save. Excuse me, he saved others himself he cannot say. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those, Mark says, who were crucified with him reviled him. As one has put it, Jesus was despised by the people and he was treated by them as an animal. He was treated subhuman. Beneath compassion, like a worm. Someone beneath mercy, unworthy of any grace, worthy only of ridicule. We've witnessed the silence and the separation. We've seen the sneering and the scorn, but then there's still one last way that we are shown the amazing depths of God forsakenness in this passage. From verses 12 through 18, we, we read about the sorrow and the suffering that Jesus endured. The sorrow and the suffering. James Boyce, he states that in some ways these verses comprise the most striking section of all in Psalm 22. 
we find here a, a really a graphic picture of the death by crucifixion. According to verse 14, just walk through it with me briefly. In verse 14, all of his bones, his hands, his, his shoulders, his arms, his pelvis, they were all out of joint from hanging there on the cross. He describes a profuse perspiration that was, caused by the, that, that was caused by the intense suffering that he was going through. He depicts the terrible effects upon his heart. In verse 15, he details not only the extreme exhaustion that he experienced, but also the extreme thirst. In verse 16, he speaks of having his hands and his feet pierced. And in verses 17 and 18, he describes being stripped naked with no regard for his modesty. He describes all of these things in such a way that we know that they are indicative of what happened to a person who was crucified. But let me point out to you once again, because it bears repeating, David would not have known about anything like this firsthand. It certainly had never happened to him, and he had never seen it occur. This was the type of execution that was still far in the future. Nevertheless, what is described in these verses point us to the utter sorrow and suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. And so this amazing, the amazing nature of Psalm 22 is, is amazing as it pertains to the accuracy with which David wrote, but also the depths of the God-forsakenness that Jesus endured on the cross. Our Lord suffered tremendously. He was abandoned. He was mocked. He was tortured. These are the depths that he, he went to. And it's what it means to be forsaken by God. But before we leave this section, let me just point out a few quick little glimpses of hope that there are in the first half because no time does we ever think that, that Jesus was completely devoid of hope. Look, look back with me as a matter of fact. Even nestled in between the silence and the separation and the, the sneering and the scorn and the sorrow and the suffering, nestled in between those are a couple of examples of where we see that, that the psalmist reminds himself of God's true character. The first time we see it is back in verse 3. In verse 3, notice what he says, but you are holy. In other words, you're completely righteous. Your nature is one in whom there is no guile. There's nothing false. There's nothing, there's nothing negative about you. You're completely holy. And what I want you to know is that, that that is the key to help us realize what we read about in this amazing song. Is that through all of this that Jesus Christ suffered, God still remained completely holy and completely righteous. What happened to the one that we read about here, the forsakenness that he experienced... It was not the result of a capricious and unjust God. No, no, God is holy. He is righteous and everything that he does is holy and righteous. And listen, because that's the case, then we know that God is completely faithful and he's completely worthy of our trust. That's why the psalmist reminds himself in verses 4 and 5 that God had been faithful to deliver Israel's fathers in the past. When they had cried out to him, God had always proved himself to be faithful to deliver them. That's the gist of verses 4 and 5. But then notice with me verses 9 and 11. Because through verses 9 and 11, the psalmist reminds us that that's not only what happened to our fathers, it's what happened to me. Since the day I was born, you have been there. You, you placed me on my mother's breast. You have, you have watched over me from the moment that I took my first breath all the way until now. And so listen, I want you to recognize that that is a, a phenomenal reminder for you and for me when we go through life. 
And we feel as if we've been abandoned. And we feel like God is being silent and that he's separated from us. And we're experiencing the sneering and the scorn of those around us. And we're going through sorrow and we're going through suffering. It is imperative that we remember that God is holy and that he is just and that he can be trusted. And he's been trusted in people that we know in the past. We can see it in their lives. We can read Christian biographies and see exactly how God had ministered to them and tested them, but also brought them through. But then it is our own testimony. God, you've never abandoned me. You've always been there. Through very difficult and dark times, you've never turned me over and turned me loose. We must remind ourselves of God's holiness. We must remind ourselves of his trustworthiness. And here's the thing. If God is holy and if he is trustworthy, then ultimately we can expect God to come through and to aid us and deliver us in the problem that we're facing right now. And that's exactly what we see him do in verses 19 through 21. You see, these verses really form the climax of the first half of this psalm. It's really the hinge. It's the turning point around which the entire psalm is built right here. And in these verses, we hear the psalm. He's appealing to God. He's crying out based upon God's holiness and faithfulness to deliver him from his God-forsakenness. Notice what he cries. He says, do not be far from me. Hasten to help me. Deliver me. Save me. There's, a, there's an anxiousness in these cries. There's a sense of emergency in his pleas. Then notice that last phrase of verse 21. It's dropped in so subtly and, and so delicately in the written form that we might miss it if we didn't really slow down and recognize what he says. He says, you have answered me. It's one word in the Hebrew. We have to make it four words in the English for it to make sense to us. You have answered me. Now those, those words might just look delicate and subtle on paper, but make no mistake about it. Those words form a joyful shout. In fact, James Johnston has said that these final words of verse 21 are a shout for joy from the lips of Jesus. Boyce actually writes this. He says, these, these words mark the moment at which the period of darkness passes and Jesus, having suffered true alienation from the Father, becomes aware of God's presence and favor once again. There's a resounding element of deliverance in these words. And they signal a change that occurs for the rest of the psalm. From this point forward, in Psalm 22, as James Johnston points out, he says Jesus announces the growth of the gospel around the world and across time. He says the second half of Psalm 22 describes the ministry of the risen Christ. After the resurrection, Christ is a preacher and he's a missionary. And that's what leads me to identify for you the third really amazing point. The reason why this psalm is so amazing, the third point that I want you to know is the amazing heights of resurrection victory that we see in this passage. The amazing heights of resurrection victory. Notice that after God heard and answered his cry, Jesus begins his mission of proclaiming the name of Yahweh, the name of God, to, to his people. He starts with his brethren in verse 22. He calls them the descendants of Jacob and, and the offspring of Israel in verse 23. I take that to mean that Jesus began by revealing himself, first of all, to his disciples, and then by more widely to the Jewish people as a whole. 
But then notice the progression. We're moving quickly now in verse 27. The testimony of Christ moves to the ends of the world. You see that phrase there? And then to all the families of the nations. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1 verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It follows the same pattern as the last words that Jesus gave to his disciples as he told them to go into all the world. He says, but you shall receive power in Acts, verse one, Acts 1 verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses, listen, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In fact, in fact, this is where Psalm 22 gets even more amazing. If it hadn't gripped you enough, hang on because it's fixing to bless you. You see... Where we stand today, over 3,000 years from the writing of Psalm 22, if we understand it correctly, we recognize that it was written about us. You see, notice the gospel message about what Jesus Christ did on the cross, it would not only go to the Jews, to his brethren there in Jerusalem, it would not only move outward, into the other nations of the earth. But notice what we see there in verse 30. We realize that it will be a posterity. It will go to a next generation, to a people yet unborn. You see, brothers and sisters, you and I are included in Psalm 22. It talks about when Christ rises from the dead, that the, the good news of the gospel will continue throughout the world and throughout time all the way down until God's word penetrated your hearts and my heart. We're in Psalm 22. What an amazing thought to consider that the Lord Jesus Christ, as they stripped him and as they beat him and they nailed him to a cross and they mocked him and they hurled their insults at him, and as he experienced the forsakenness of God, he did so with an eye toward those who would ultimately come to faith in him. And when he rose from the dead and he gave the great commission to his disciples to go out into all the world and proclaim the good news of the gospel to all people everywhere, making disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he had us on his mind even then. And on the cross... After the resurrection, our Lord had those who would come to faith on his mind too. Even today, we are still on the Savior's mind. The scriptures declare in Romans 8 verse 34 that the Lord Jesus is right now at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and for me. What an amazing thought. So we've seen the amazing accuracy of David's prophetic voice. We've contemplated the amazing depths of the God-forsakenness that Jesus experienced and we have considered the amazing heights of the resurrection victory and then notice with me the final point that I want to make to you and it is that what we have revealed here is the amazing grace. The amazing grace that is revealed in the psalm. Look at those final words. Verse 30 tells us it will be recounted to the Lord of the next generation that he has done this. Verse 31. He has done it. Dale Ralph Davis notes that this is an awfully abrupt ending to the psalm. He points that the Hebrew doesn't have an object for the verb. So for our English translations to make sense, we have to provide an object, which is what we do. That's the it or the this. And so we have this, he has done this. He has done it. 
What's the this? What's the it that he's talking about there? Well, to answer that question, let me point out that many have drawn a parallel between the final phrase of verse 31 and the final words of Jesus from the cross in John 19, verse 30, where Jesus cried, it is finished. So what's the it? What is the it that has been finished? That, what is the it that he has done? Well, it is nothing less than the atonement. You see, on the cross, God's righteous demands for sin's punishment were fully and finally satisfied. All of our sin was laid upon Christ and he was punished in our place. And as a result, all of his righteousness is now fully and freely offered and available to all who will believe on it. As Tim Keller has said, what is truly amazing is that the Lord Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. He was forsaken for us. The judgment that should have fallen upon us fell upon Christ instead. And if that's not amazing enough, just as we recognized last week, when the king is victorious, his people are victorious. His resurrection secures our resurrection. His, his triumph makes us triumph. Our atonement has been purchased by the finished work of Christ. He has done this. It is finished. What undeserving love. What amazing grace. And what an amazing song. That leads me to my sermon and sentence this morning, which is this. Because his God-forsaken death opens access to God for sinners like us who come to him in faith. And because his victorious resurrection guarantees our victory. And brothers and sisters, we must proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to all people everywhere. That's what we do. That's why we open the scriptures. That's why we read them. That's why we explain them. That's why we apply them. And that's why we go live them. It's so that all people everywhere can come to understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This psalm was prophesied about what was the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it pointed to the humiliation of Christ, but it also points to the exaltation of Christ. And it tells us that because God is holy, sin must be dealt with. Your sin my sin, must be dealt with by a holy God. Christ took our sin upon him and he suffered the punishment that was due to us and he was forsaken by God so that we might never be forsaken. But death was not the end. He rose from the dead victorious and he proved himself to be the one who was worthy, the only one who could satisfy the demands of God's righteous law and in his victory he offers salvation to all who will trust him. I pray that that is your testimony. I pray that you have come to a full faith in Christ by repenting of your sin and by placing your full confidence in what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. If you have not done that, then I want you to know that forgiveness and freedom are yours for receiving. I'd like to ask any of you who are here in this room worshiping with us this morning that if that is not your testimony, if you are not confident that Christ is your Savior, that you would, you would grab Pastor Ted or you'd grab me as you're leaving today and you would talk to us about what it means to know with a surety that you have come to faith in Christ. We want to help you be able to settle that issue once and for all 
Perhaps you're joining us online this morning. They're going to put a phone number up there and you're going to be welcome to contact us. Call us. Let us know that you would like for someone to call you back and pray with you and talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. What you do with Jesus is of utmost importance to us. And I don't want you to hesitate to reach out to us. If it is your testimony that you have trusted in Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, and if His sacrifice and His resurrection are what you are trusting in, then we have a responsibility to proclaim that good news to others and to share it with our family and with our friends, our neighbors and our co-workers. What Jesus Christ has done for us, He will do for them too. And one of the ways that we proclaim the good news is by what we're about to do this morning. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to do it a little differently. Um, Because of the times in which we are in, we're just not doing the things exactly how we've done it before, but I want you to understand it does not change the meaning of what we're about to do. When you came in, hopefully all of you in the room have got one of these little self-contained cups Those of you who are at home, the opportunity now for you to get uh, some bread and and the juice for you there. And I want to tell you a little bit about this cup. The cellophane on top, you want to pull it first. Be careful with it. You pull it back and it will reveal the wafer. And you can take that wafer out. Be careful. Don't pull too much at one time. You'll open it all which is okay if your dexterity is good, unlike mine. Then once you have the wafer, then you can pull back the tab on the cup. Those of you at home, just give us here in the sanctuary a little time to get ourselves ready. I want us to observe the Lord's Supper this morning as a means of reminding ourselves of the salvation that is ours through what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And I want us to remember that through our partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are actually proclaiming our Lord's death, His burial, and His resurrection to an onlooking world. Let me remind you before we partake this morning of the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, 20 through 26. Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That is why we want to continue of doing that in our time of together this morning. You have your wafer there with you and you have your bread there at home. This is the body of Christ. This represents the body of Christ, which he he was nailed to a cross so that we might be forgiven of our sins. Take and eat.
this cup. As we hold it in our hands and look at it, there's nothing all that amazing about it, honestly. But when you consider what it represents, and when you think about the fact that it represents the very lifeblood of our Savior poured out so that you and I might be forgiven of our sins and be gifted with life eternal, it makes this an amazing moment regardless of what we think about the, the packaging because it's there to remind us of something that's far greater than anything we could ever bring to our fingers and to our hands in this world. And so as you look at that and as you consider what it represents, the blood of Christ shed for the remission of sins, take and drink. I conclude this morning just simply with this. This is an amazing psalm that we have encountered. I would really encourage you to go back. I have only brushed the surface. I would encourage you to go back and study it in depth. There's so much rich material in this psalm. Look at all of your cross-references in your Bible. Check them out in the New Testament. Let it, let it begin to, to feed you. As you begin to continue to feed off of it, let it bring you and draw you into a place of worship. It is truly an amazing psalm. It speaks about the prophecy. Talks about what Christ has done. Points us to his amazing grace. And offers us the opportunity to engage in an amazing celebration this morning of remembering all that Christ has done for us. In just a moment, Will is going to come and he's going to lead us in a final song. And as we do, we're going to sing it. It's amazing grace. I think it's an appropriate song for us to sing on a day like today. As we sing that song, I want you to sing it from the depths of your heart. Because it truly is the testimony that we as believers are drawn to. And I just want you to remember one more time that which we have learned this morning. It's because of his God-forsaken death, because it opens access to God for sinners like us who come to him in faith. And because of his victorious resurrection that guarantees our victory, then brothers and sisters, you and I ought to rejoice and we ought to continue to go and proclaim the good news of the gospel to all who will hear and so that all will know. As you leave this morning, if you'll just take the the, the, the remnants of, of your cup and that there, there's going to be some, there's going to be some um, uh, trash cans outside. If you could just help us by making sure you take and put that there, we would greatly appreciate that. Would you bow in prayer with me as we prepare to be dismissed this morning? Lord, we are so grateful for your goodness and mercy to us. We're undeserving of the grace that you have extended to us through Christ, through his death on the cross, which we have been able to witness through this amazing psalm this morning. And Father, my prayer is, is that you would warm us and that you would bring conviction to us over the areas of our lives which we have yet to give you full and complete control. I pray, Lord, though, that you would unite our hearts together with our brothers and sisters that are in this room and those who are worshiping with us online, those who are all around the world this morning who are also a part of the body of Christ. May we sense the, the unity that we, that we have with them through what we have experienced, read about, and tasted with our lips this very morning. We thank you for being so good to us, and we praise you in Christ's name.
Amen.